Good morning, Northwest Hills. Uh, thank you for having me. You guys have had a plethora of guest speakers uh, over the last uh, couple months, and Gary was one of them. He's one of my teachers at Western Seminary. He recommended me to come down here. And so if this doesn't go well, we can blame Gary, okay? Uh, my name is Michael Ingleking. I'm 27 years old, and I got a picture of my family to show you. Um, my beautiful wife is Kristen. My daughter, Nora, is about three years old, and she is awesome. And then my son, Jack, is one and a half now. You can't tell from the picture, but he has, like, ultra red hair. He's sitting right back there, actually, because he's really sad. Um, yeah, uh, he's usually either running away from us or putting some choking hazard in his mouth, both at the same time, usually, actually. Um, but we live in Salem. Both my wife and I were born and raised there. Uh, and up until very recently, I was on staff at Morningstar Community Church, where I had been attending since I was born, and I was on staff there for a little over nine years. Um, I took five really, really long years to finish my master's degree at Western, which is how I know Gary. He has walked through um, me over the last couple of years, which have been really one of the most difficult seasons of my life. And I believe he recommended me to your elders to come down here and spend some time with you guys, because there are some points of similarity in our stories. And so I want to just share my, my story with you guys, or, or at least what I can. So, like I said, born and raised in Salem. I went to Morningstar Community Church for my whole life because my dad was on staff there for about 30 years. He started out as a youth pastor, and then most of that time he was the, served as the executive pastor. Um, I lived my whole life at that church. I was really heavily involved throughout you know, children's ministry, middle school, high school. I served as like a worship leader, musician, and in the media and tech departments. Uh, shortly after high school, I was hired on part-time to kind of do sound and media. And then uh, I was hired to be our worship, one of our worship leaders. And then after that, for the last six years, I've been the high school pastor there up until a few months ago. In April of 2017, so over two years ago, my parents called a family meeting and sat my brothers and I and our wives down. And my dad told us that in the early 90s, uh, he had had an affair with a woman who was attending the church. Um, my dad uh, repented when he was confronted about that season of his life. Uh, he was terminated. He lost his job um, and went through a process of, of church discipline with our pastor and our board of directors. Um, and then a while after that, he was actually brought back on staff at Morningstar. Um, this was all when I was really young. And so I basically lived my whole life up to this point. I didn't know about that season of my dad's life. Um, my dad was and is an incredible, incredible dad. Uh, he's been a loving, faithful, dedicated husband to my mom, both before that season of his life and after, um, which has basically been my whole life. Um, my parents' marriage is intact, it recovered, and it's healthy. Um, he was and is an awesome Jesus follower and is an uh, incredible pastor. And I just want to say that I am so, so sorry for um, what you guys are going through and what um, the Irwin family... Yeah. Um, in January of 2018, my dad was actually asked to resign from his position at Morningstar because uh, a series of kind of complicated circumstances. Um, our board of directors basically believed it was... Their, their process of church discipline that they went through and their restoration process wasn't really handled properly, so they thought it would be best for our church if he wasn't on staff there anymore. Um, and so began one of the hardest seasons of my family's life. Uh, my parents were asked not to attend their church anymore. 
and eventually they moved up to Vancouver, Washington. And I remained on staff at Morningstar for a while. My parents loved that church still, and they wanted me to stay. Um, but our church and staff suffered pretty heavily from their loss. And uh, my parents were kind of a, an integral part of that culture. My dad was the executive pastor. My mom led worship all the time. Um, so we felt their absence very, very deeply. And over the last um, year and a half or so, our church continued to just lose money. And so we had to let some staff go to make our budget work. And I was one of those layoffs. Um, so my last month was February. And so I've been in a season of transition, as we Christians like to say. Um, and I'm curious and excited to see what God has next for uh, our family. Um, and I just wanted to tell you my story because I want you guys to know that someone else very nearby to you um, knows exactly what it feels like to uh, want to be in a church when it's just difficult. When you're asking God, like, what are you doing here? What's going on? What are we doing as a church? Where are you leading us? Um, and I also know what it's like to be crushed and disillusioned by the reality that people that you trust sin in really big ways. Um, there's a narrative in the scriptures that has been incredibly transformative for me um, personally, and it's shaping how I see the last couple of years of my life and uh, how I see the world in general. I'm hoping by looking at it together uh, this morning that um, we might not see just your church's story, but maybe most importantly, your life story through this lens. And so we're going to look at the story of Joseph. My goal is to look particularly at how he responds to what happens in his life, how he responds to a lifetime of disappointment and rejection, abandonment, betrayal, and hardship. So we're going to talk about the story of Joseph. It starts in Genesis 37 and goes through the end of the book of Genesis, which is like uh, 14 chapters or something. So we're going to be here for about 12 hours. So get comfortable. Line by line, we're going to just work our way through it. Uh, No, we're going to have to do some summary. I'm going to try to kind of fly over the whole story um, quickly, but also in a way that makes sense. Maybe it will be review for some of you that have read it. Um, And if you haven't heard it, then great. I'm happy to summarize it for you. Uh, It's not going to be a deep, like technical, in the weeds teaching. um, Just a big picture thing. And that's actually a good way for us to learn from the scriptures is to understand what's happening over a long period of time, lots of chapters. So uh, feel free to have the text open and just kind of scan and skim along. I'm going to do one chapter at a time. So Genesis 37. You guys there? Because I'm not. Hold on. Just give me a second. Ready? Okay. Uh, Joseph was the favorite child out of 12 sons. The Bible says that, that his dad loved him more, which is really messed up. Uh, His dad, Jacob, made him this fancy, cool coat. Uh, To top it off, Joseph had these dreams where, like, his family bows down and worships him. And then he tells his family about those dreams, which you can't really control what you dream about necessarily. And it's fine, Joseph, if you want to have these crazy dreams, but did you, like, have to tell them about it? So naturally, Joseph's brothers... Hated him very much. So one day, they're out in the field. The brothers are out in the field, and they see Joseph. And their blood starts to boil, and they plot to kill him. But they're like, nah, we better not do that. Let's just sell him into slavery. So they sell him. They have his robe. They cover it in blood, and they bring it to their father, and they tell him that Joseph was killed uh, by a wild animal. That's 37. Chapter 38 is... A seeming departure from the narrative of Joseph. It's a little bit of an interruption. I think maybe it's supposed to kind of cause us to kind of wonder, like, oh, what's going to happen next? There's some thematic um, similarities with the story of Judah. I'm, not, I'm going to skip this because we've got to get through the rest of the 
whole book. So um, you guys can ask your elders and pastors how to make sense of 38. I don't want to answer those questions. Uh, Genesis 39. Uh, Joseph winds up in the household of an Egyptian officer named Potiphar. And in verses 2 and 3, we read that the Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord is with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Potiphar puts Joseph kind of in charge of basically everything. Potiphar's wife notices that Joseph was a good looking guy and tries to convince him to sleep with her. He refuses. She pursues him multiple times. He continues to refuse until one day she pursues him, grabs his coat or his garment, and uh, she says, sleep with me. And he runs away, fleeing the scene, leaving that item of clothing behind. And then the, the pain of her rejection, she accuses Joseph of forcing himself on her. And Potiphar throws Joseph in prison. And then in prison, we read in verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So the prison keeper puts Joseph in charge of everything in the prison. And then we're at uh, Genesis 40. There's two other prisoners with Joseph. They made Pharaoh angry, not Potiphar, but Pharaoh. Uh, there's a cupbearer and a baker, and both of those guys in prison with Joseph. They both have dreams on the same night, and um, Joseph uh, is empowered by God to interpret those dreams. What they mean, one guy, the cupbearer, was going to get his job back, and the other guy, the baker, was going to be executed. And both of those dreams, it turns out, come true, which is like great for Joseph, great for the cupbearer, really sad for the baker. And uh, two years go by, and we are in Genesis 41. Pharaoh now has some wild dreams. None of his dudes can interpret the dreams. So the cupbearer who had his head, got his job back, remembers Joseph, and he tells Pharaoh, he's like, I got a dreams guy. He's pretty good with reasonable rates, you know. So Pharaoh calls for Joseph and tells him about his dreams. And Joseph, again, empowered by God, interprets those dreams. And what they meant was that there was going to be seven years of really great, abundant crops, and then seven years of a really, really bad famine. So Joseph tells Pharaoh, here's what you got to do. You got to pick a wise guy to oversee the land of Egypt. And then each of the seven good years, you're going to set aside one fifth of the crops so that during the seven bad years, we've got some food set aside. So Pharaoh tells Joseph, listen, since God has shown you all of this, clearly you're the wise guy that we need to oversee this project. So how about you do it? Joseph agrees. Let's take a little breath. We just covered quite a few chapters. Let's recall, he goes from a smug teenager bragging about his dumb coat and his weird dreams to a slave and like a regional manager slave deal. And then he's the assistant to the regional slave manager. And uh, thank you, office fans. Uh, And then he's a prisoner. And then now a wise, tactful second in command to Pharaoh. Kind of a wild story. You guys ready to keep pressing on? Okay. Genesis 41 continued. Uh, Joseph's interpretations of Pharaoh's dreams come true. He successfully stores up like an immeasurable amount of food um, during the seven good years so that they have full storehouses during the years of famine. And the famine was so bad that uh, people from all over the, the world had to come to Egypt to buy food. And there we are in Genesis 42. Uh, who should be affected by this famine but Joseph's family? So Jacob sends his ten eldest sons down to Egypt. Uh, Joseph was second to youngest, and then there was Benjamin, baby Ben, as I like to call him, stayed back with dad. And uh, so who should they run into when they come to Egypt to buy food but Joseph, the guy selling food to people? Joseph recognizes them, but they do not recognize him. 
because it's been like 13 years or something, and he's probably got like an Egyptian haircut or a tan or something. It'd be like someone growing up like on the outskirts of Corvallis and then like moving to Portland and like aging a decade and becoming a hipster man, and they'd look pretty different. Um, so the rest of the story, 43 through 49, uh, that's a lot more story that we have to cover. And uh, it's all amazing storytelling, and it's kind of just this drama of Joseph and his brothers. And I have to summarize that chunk so that I can get to what I want to next. So uh, you should go and read it very closely because it's very, very good. Um, but Joseph kind of, in 43 through 49, he kind of puts his brothers through a series of tests on their character, their motives, and eventually he reveals himself to them, tells them who he really is. They have like this weepathon hug fest, and it's a happy reunion. Pharaoh tells Joseph's brothers to go get their whole family and bring them down to Egypt uh, so they can live and be a happy family together. Joseph's father, Jacob, gets to live the remainder of his life uh, with his family, with Joseph. He gets to give his blessing to jo- uh, Joseph's children. Happy story. The book of Genesis ends with the death of Jacob. There it is. We just covered 14 chapters. I'm going to get off the stage now. Um, so this is a point where I want to kind of zoom in on a couple of specific moments of Joseph's kind of reactions and response to the events of his life. Um, and I think that two kind of points or principles will emerge uh, if, we, if we look at him. And so we're just going to dig in a little bit. The first point is this. Feel all the feels. Everyone say, feel all the feels. Yes. In Genesis 42:24, this is right when Joseph's brothers have first come to Egypt. And... Um, they, rec- they don't recognize him. He recognizes them. They're kind of talking to each other, trying to figure some stuff out. And Joseph's just overcome. And so we read in verse 24. He turned away from them and wept. A little bit later, Joseph had sent his brothers back to their homeland to get baby Ben and bring him back. And uh, the brothers come back with Benjamin. And we read in 43, verse 30. Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother And he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. A little bit later in chapter 45, this is the moment when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. Read verse 1 and 2. Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Verse 2. He wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. A little bit later, in verses 14 and 15, it says, He fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. So what we can say is Joseph is a crybaby. (laughs) Why does the author keep telling us over and over again about the tears, the weeping of Joseph. I think it's important uh, in Hebrew storytelling, when an author repeats something, that means that we should pay attention and and listen. Um, And I think Joseph is very, very much aware of how he feels. He lets himself feel all the feelings and the hurt and the pain all coming at this climax and the reunion with his brothers. He kind of tries to be this cold, stoic, like secretive, Um, tester of their character, but he just, he breaks down at multiple points and just starts weeping. Um, He experiences the reality of his his emotions and about the circumstances of his life. In a book called The Body Keeps the Score, uh, Bessel van der Kolk writes, neuroscience research shows that the only way we can change the way we feel is by becoming aware of our inner experience and learning to befriend what is going on inside ourselves. 
I believe that Joseph in this 13 years or so of trial uh, had befriended his inner experience. He didn't ignore or suppress his pain. He allowed himself to feel it and express it. And I think that we need to do that as well if we are going to be healthy people and healthy Jesus followers. My story of the last few years and your guys' church story have some similarities. And just want, in case you haven't heard it in a while or never heard it, encourage you, give you the freedom to just feel the feelings. Let it hurt. And definitely give each other grace. Give grace to those around you who might be in a different spot than you in this journey. Maybe you're kind of brand new and you're just oblivious and you kind of want to stay that way. Or maybe you're wishing that we could just kind of move on to what's next, like what was on that screen about what's next for you guys. Maybe you're just like, let's just go there. Maybe you're still grieving and just really in the thick of feeling like your world got rocked. We have to allow each other the differences in how we process something like this. It's okay to not be okay. It's also okay if you are okay. Proverbs 25.20 says, Whoever sings songs or tries to encourage a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day. Trying to help someone be joyful when they're brokenhearted isn't necessarily helpful. Giving someone a, a pep talk to help them snap out of a legitimate season of hurt isn't helpful. Our love and encouragement and counsel to one another should be appropriate for the person and for the occasion. Um, with my personality type, I tend to not process my emotions well. I either am just not aware of them because I don't think about them, or I, I choose not to think about them because I know that it will kind of disrupt my sense of peace and well-being. Um, so I'll just kind of ignore them sometimes. And so this point, this example of Joseph, um, to feel the feelings has been a difficult journey for me. Um, from the pain of learning about a dark season of my dad's life um, to trying to stay hopeful and positive when it felt like my church was falling apart to losing my job, I'm tempted to just kind of not think about it and think that I could just kind of move on and pretend that everything's fine. And um, It's been difficult for me to just sit in the pain. Um, but I've also found some incredible freedom and healing um, by sitting in those emotions and those pain and processing them with a, a biblical counselor and with godly, uh, wise friends. But it's taken hard work. Um, and I feel like I'm just barely getting started. Um, and maybe some of you guys need to uh, get started as well. Next point is in Genesis chapter 50. So flip ahead, chapter 50, verse 15. The point is, God is good. And he always wins. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. There it is again. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. So Jacob's dead. The brothers are worried that Joseph is going to get his payback now. So they make up this story about dad telling his brothers to tell Joseph, Hey, you've got to forgive your brothers, which Joseph already did. And then Joseph says one of the most incredible, weighty, epic lines, I think, in all of the Bible. Verse 19 and 20. Joseph said to them, do not fear, 
For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph calms his brother's fears and he says, am I in the place of God? Which is ironic because he is. He is second in command of Pharaoh. He has the food. He has control of life and death for a lot of people. Um, He could do whatever he wants, but he chooses to see the events of his life, the evil actions of his brothers, the false accusations of Potiphar's wife. He chooses to see all of this through this amazing, amazing perspective. He sees that there were two intentions or two wills at play in all that happened to him. In the same set of actions, there were competing end goals. Joseph's brothers wanted him to be gone. They wanted to be rid of the favorite brother with the stupid coat and the stupid dreams. They wanted to hurt him. So they threw him in a pit. They sold him into slavery. But in that same series of events, God was actually working his will. Not just for Joseph, not just for his family, but for all of mankind. Potiphar's wife wanted to hurt Joseph for rejecting her. But God redirected the evil done to Joseph to put him exactly where God wanted him to be. God does this all the time. He doesn't spin evil things and call them good. He doesn't even stop evil things from happening. He mysteriously and masterfully integrates his intention and his desires into the things that happen to us and happen around us so that he can accomplish his purpose and he wins. I believe this verse is at the end of the book of Genesis to cause us to look back on all that's happened with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob uh, to see it with this perspective of Joseph. And I think it's supposed to help us to look ahead to what's coming for the story of Israel, all the evil that's going to happen to them, all the evil that they will commit, and to see it through this perspective as well. Romans eight twenty eight and 29 says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God doesn't say that he will find the good in all things. He says he will work all things together for the good of those who love him. He doesn't promise a silver lining in this life. God's purpose isn't to make you happy or as happy as possible in this life. It isn't even to simply forgive you of your sins and give you access to heaven so that we can get out of here one day. His purpose is to use everything that happens to you and around you to conform you into the image of Jesus. And in my life story, I cannot yet see how God is going to win. In the mess that we're, I'm, I'm walking through, that I have walked through, I cannot necessarily see God's intentions yet. To use the analogy of Joseph, I feel like I'm somewhere post being thrown into prison and pre-world-saving abundance of food. <laughs> but I promise that I'm trying to see 
my life story through this lens. What's happening uh, right now? You know, getting, losing my job. What happened to my parents? What happened in my church? Um, and it is only possible through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit because it is an act of trust, an act of faith that's given to us by God in the first place. My final point doesn't come from the story of Joseph, but it's related and um, important. Is this. Remember who the real enemy is. Ephesians 6, 11, and 12 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If it has flesh and blood, it is not your ultimate enemy. It, they, he, she might be intending evil against you, but the power and ultimate intention behind those actions is Satan himself. And it is, believe me, I know that it is so much easier to blame a person. It feels better, it's satisfying, but it's actually not right. It doesn't correspond to reality. Satan has a will and intentions, and it is to steal, kill, and destroy. And he uses people to accomplish this when he can. He used Joseph's brothers. He used Potiphar's wife. He has used people in your story and in my story. But God is the one who is good and has the power to win, to accomplish what he wants to accomplish I think that when we do all three of these, when we allow ourselves to feel the feels of life, when we trust and remember that God is good and that he has the power to accomplish what he wants to win, and when we remember who the real enemy is, we, I think, can actually nail the appropriate way to respond to the hardships and the trials and the disappointments of life. Those three allow us to feel the freedom to hurt from sin, to call it what it is, to be angry over it. However, we don't get to retaliate against people. We don't get to sin against people who've hurt us. We don't get to be bitter because they are not the real enemy. We also, we don't need to despair or lose hope as we're feeling those things because we can trust that our good God is also powerful enough to accomplish what he wants to do. When we do all these things, I think we live in reality. We don't deny the pain we experience. We acknowledge the cosmic battle that's happening. And we trust both the goodness and the power of God to accomplish his will. I have been praying for you guys and hurting for you. Um, and again, I'm just, I'm sorry. For what's what's happening, um, and I I'm attempting to live these three principles out in my life, and I just want to invite you to do the same as you walk through this journey as a church. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for um, not just that the story of Joseph is interesting, but that you mean to shape us as people by the life of Joseph. 
I'm thankful for every detail that you've shown and you've given us. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who understand the weight and reality of sin and we let it have its weight and we let it hurt. And I pray, Lord, that we would also, in a spirit-empowered act of obedience and trust, place our hope in your goodness and your power to accomplish what you want. We love you. We trust you with Northwest Hills. We trust you with Morningstar. We do trust you with the Irwin family. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.